We are uh, kicking off a new sermon series today for the Advent season, and the sermon series is titled Home. Home. Ah, there we go. Uh, and we we're trying to come up with some sort of image to capture, to, to engage with us, to anchor our minds around this idea of home and the image we came up with, which I really love. I don't know if I can explain why I love it, but it's the image of a red front door. I want you to take a second and just think, uh, what comes to your mind? What are the emotions? Uh, what are the memories? What are the ideas or images or experiences? What comes to mind uh, when you hear the word home? For me, kind of two things come to mind. Obviously, first of all, uh, my home, my immediate family, my wife, my four kids, the house we live in, the place that we sleep at night, the place that we share meals together. I obviously, um, a lot comes to mind for that. But also, when I hear the word home, inevitably, I can't help but think about uh, my childhood home as well, and, and many of the stories and memories that come with a home that I grew up in. So let me, let me, as you consider what comes to your mind when you hear the word home, let me share with you a few um, anecdotes from Carl's childhood memories of home. Uh, I was, a lot of my memories from home involve another character. His name's Eric Johnson. He was the neighbor boy. Uh, lots of fun, lots of mischief occurred with me and Eric Johnson. One day, Eric and I were playing, and we had this brilliant idea. Kids, don't try this at home. But the idea was if we climb up into the tree and we go out on the branch, we could tie a rope onto the branch. And then standing on the branch, we could hold the rope in our hands. And if our physics was accurate, we could jump off the branch. And the rope would go taut. And then it would just be this amazing rope swing. I mean, it would just... We could see it in our minds. It was going to be incredible. Some of my calculations were wrong <laughs> as a little, I don't know, third grader. Um, and so when I hit the ground, ah, you know what I did? I immediately ran home. There was another time um, I was riding down, the, I was riding down the, the dirt road. We lived way out in the country, northern Minnesota, you know, miles-long dirt road. And I'm riding my little brown uh, banana seat bicycle, you know, the long, we call it a banana seat, really long seat. It was awesome. That was an awesome bicycle. And I'm riding along, and suddenly ambling out of the woods is a big mama black bear. And with her is a little baby cub. And if there's one thing I've learned as a little boy in northern Minnesota, when you see the mom and the baby, just get out of there. Like, you don't want, like, mom and baby bear together, get away. So, you know, obviously, I'm, I, I don't know how old I am at this point. It's a random memory. I might be, my memory might even be lying to me about what actually happened. But what I remember is seeing the mom and the baby and feeling scared. Like, ah, scared, danger, threat, get away. So I turned my little brown bicycle around, and phew, I biked as fast as I could back home. I remember um, in college, 
when I worked at summer camp, and I'd go nine weeks straight of summer camp, and I'd get done at the end of the summer, and I was just exhausted, and I would come back home at the end of the summer, and and my memory of home is, and I would sleep for like 14 hours a night for like seven days straight until it was time to go back to college. Um, What about you? What are some of the memories, what are some of the emotions, what are some of the ideas that come to mind when you hear the word home? I mean, for me already, I've I've kind of thought of home as a place that I want to run to, I want to go to, I want to, it's where I go for safety, it's where I go for protection, it's where I go for healing. When I was in sixth grade, I uh, came down with a really bad case of pneumonia, and I remember that I lost about 20 pounds, which as a sixth grade boy was more than healthy to lose because of my illness. But I just remember lying on the couch at home and my mom caring for me in my sickness. Now, here's the thing. I'm guessing that all of us have some sort of hopefully positive memories, ideas associated with home. And yet, I'm sure we can all acknowledge that for every one of us or for every one of our memories that are really like good and happy and like it's a place of safety and and comfort and care, we also have had ourselves, or if we're blessed to have not had it ourselves, we, we know somebody for whom the word home actually involves a whole lot of pain and needs a lot of redemption. When I was writing this, two different buddies of mine came to mind, one for whom um, he was raised just by his dad, and his dad basically left him completely to his own. From a, a very, very young age, he was expected to 100% provide for all of his daily needs. For him, he would say home, in his childhood memory, was a place of neglect. I've got another buddy who, um, his dad uh, was pretty regularly verbally mean, even abusive to him. So for him, some of his early memory of home is that it's a place of hurt and suffering. What comes to your mind when you think about home? Here's what um, we're going to talk about Here's the idea we're going to talk about for the next four weeks of Advent as a way to get ready to celebrate the coming of God to be with us. As Eugene Peterson in his version of Scripture wrote uh, in in the Gospel of John, uh, the word God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Christmas is a time we celebrate God who wants to be with us, who in, in a sense wants to share our homes with us. So here's the idea. God wants to give you a home. God wants to give you a home, but if we're going to take that seriously, we we have to kind of do two things. First of all, we need to recognize that if God wants to give us a home, if God wants to share this safe and intimate space with us, then the first thing that needs to happen is we need to acknowledge that our understanding and our experience of home probably needs to be redeemed. Because we know that for some of us, and maybe even for each of us, there's some broken image of home. Anything and everything good in this world points towards the goodness of God, yet also experiences a a brokenness that, that takes something good and makes it hurtful or harmful. So if God wants to give us a home, then one of the first things he wants to do is redeem for us. What what is really meant by home? But second, even the the best and most beautiful experiences under, and understandings of home that we have are all actually just just blurry images of what God wants to actually fulfill 
when he gives us the most true and beautiful picture of what home is really meant to be. So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about home. We're going to talk about all the ways that we experience and share and live our lives in and out of and through and around our homes. And we're going to do it with a hope that when we celebrate the God who came to be with us on Christmas, we can do it in a way that embraces the God who is with us in our homes. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, We just finished a sermon series we studied 10 weeks through the book of Joshua. And during that whole time, we focused both on the character of Joshua, the man who was chosen as a leader of the people of Israel, uh, but we also focused on the way that Joshua and Israel show us about who God is. But I shared an idea a couple times during that whole sermon series that I want to bring back up. The idea is that Scripture has a trajectory. You know what a trajectory is, right? If I took a baseball and I were to throw it, its trajectory is the path that kind of predicts where that ball is going to land. Anything that has a trajectory is going to have a landing point. It's going to have a destination. And so similarly, everything we learned about God in the book of Joshua has a trajectory. It was a meaningful starting point, but it pointed towards its ultimate intended landing point. And here's kind of the idea. What we learned about God in the book of Joshua was a beginning point that directed us towards the ending point, which is God himself on earth, Jesus Christ. So when we say scripture has a trajectory, we could say that in a sense, Jesus is a new, a completed, a perfected, a fulfilled version of Joshua. What we saw God doing in the people of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, we're going to see Jesus bringing to its completion when he comes to earth. There's four ideas that I want to suggest. We could could pick many, many more, but there's four ideas I want to suggest about what God wants us to understand it is to enjoy, to to live, to experience the best of home. Here's the four ideas uh, we're going to explore these next four weeks. Home is a place of self-giving love. When I was sick or when I was injured, my mom cared for me in my home. Home is a place of safety and protection. When I was scared and feeling threatened, I ran home. Home is a place of rest. When I'm tired and worn out and I I just need to stop, I go home to find rest. And ultimately, the biblical story is about how our home is meant to be a place of new life. The whole biblical story, the whole arc of scripture is ultimately an invitation to receive from God the life that only he can give, a new life found in Christ. And today we're going to explore that last one first. Home is a place of new life. So here's what I want to ask you right now at the beginning of the sermon. And and maybe this is even a question that'll sort of marinate in the back of your mind uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, You can think about your Christmas celebrations. You can think about your decorations. You can think about um, the way you give and receive gifts. You can think about anything, but here's the question I want to ask you. When you consider your home, right, the physical place, maybe it's a single family home, maybe it's a condo, maybe it's a town home, maybe it's an apartment. When you think about your home, To what degree is your home 
your house, the people you share life with? To what degree is your home a place of God's new life? To what extent is new life in Christ expressed, shared, lived, celebrated, and embraced in your home? I'd like that to be a question we consider, we all consider, as we anticipate the coming of Christ throughout this Advent season. And here's how we're going to do it today. Um, Each of the next four Sundays, I'm going to kind of look back at the story of Joshua, and I'm going to look forward, biblically speaking, to the story of Christ, and I'm just going to try and draw some lines between what we saw in the life of Joshua and what we saw in the life of Christ. And today, that trajectory, that line connecting Uh, Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament starts with an exploration of actually what um, John Harden talked about in his last sermon, the idea that God makes and keeps his promises. We worship a God who makes and keeps his promises. Was that your last sermon or was that your second to last? I don't remember. I think it was your last sermon. Okay, I got the nod. Um, Whenever we talk about God's promises, there's one that around here We've talked about over and over, time and time again, um, one of the great promises that God gave. It's not actually in the book of Joshua, but at many points, it's the starting place for the book of Joshua, and we'll get there in a bit. Um, It's a promise that God made to a man named Abraham, one of the great promises in Scripture. Abraham, um, Father Abraham, the founder of what would become the nation of Israel. And if you want to read it in Genesis chapter 12, um, we see the promise that God made To Abraham, here's what God promised to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, hold on a second. So God's promise is that through one guy, Abraham, just one guy, God is going to somehow bring a blessing to all peoples. I mean, I've undertaken some somewhat sizable projects in my life. I've been around people who have undertaken some big projects in my life. This has got to be the largest scale project I've ever heard of in my life. I mean, if I'm honest, here's what I really think. If God had said, you know what, Abraham, you're great. I'm going to bless you. But what I really need you to do is just kind of stand over there. And I'm going to bless all peoples. I'm just, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do it on my own. You don't worry about it. If God had said that, I might have been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good plan, God. But what God instead said is through you, Abraham, and then through your descendants, and then eventually through anybody who follows me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bless people through humans. God, have you met any of these humans that you're planning to bring blessing to the world through? Because I just think there's a more efficient way to do this. But God chooses to promise to bring a blessing to all people and to do it through Abraham. And God and, you know, Abraham, understandingly, is sort of like, okay, what, you know, what, how are we going to do this, God? What's the plan? And, and God unfolds it a little more. You can jump ahead to Genesis 15, and God and Abraham are talking to one another, and, and God gives a little more picture of how specifically he plans to bless Abraham so that Abraham can be a blessing 
to all people. Here's Genesis 15. God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall be your offspring. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. I love that verse because here's the thing. Um, has anybody tried to count all the stars? I mean, I, don't, I can't say I've ever tried, but it'd be easy to imagine trying, and I'm just pretty certain I'm going to lose count pretty quickly before I reach anywhere near all the stars, especially you know, what we know about orbits and we don't get to see all the stars at one time. Like, this is, this is a year-long project to try and count all the stars. It, I mean, I, you know, I've got four kids, so if God said to me, I, I'm going to make you a great nation, meaning there's going to be many, many people, I might think to myself, yeah, like, i got four kids, but like, that's a, all the stars? That's a lot. That's a lot of people, God. Like, I don't, I don't know if you know how many stars there are, God, but I don't think that great of a nation It's going to come through me. But Abraham believed God. And then God has one more thing. The scripture continues. God also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So one of the very first promises that God makes to Abraham and and through Abraham to all of his people, is that God wants to bless Abraham by giving him a people and giving him a place. Next slide. It'll come. There we go. Um, And if we're honest, I mean, when we think about home, that's a pretty simple, a pretty quality definition. Home almost always involves some other people who share life with us. And home almost always involves some sort of place. It might be a permanent long-term place. It might be just a short-term, temporary place that we should do life and share relationship. But home always involves people and place. And one of the first promises God gives is that he's going to create for himself a people, a family of God, and he's going to give his people a place. Well, we know the story that God blesses Abraham with a son very late in his life, and Abraham and his wife are a little surprised at this because they're like, dude, God, we're getting really old. God's like, don't worry about it. I got it. And they're like, are you sure? Because we're getting really old. So they have a son, and then their sons have sons, and then pretty soon Israel has 12 sons, and Israel's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So there's a nation. But then that nation gets enslaved by Egypt. They get freed by God out of Egypt, and they wander around for 40 years, and they're like, God, the desert wandering is not the place you, you know, that came to our minds when you said you were going to give us a land. But Joshua is the one who comes along and fulfills the promise that God had made. Joshua is the one who obeyed and fulfilled God's promises. Joshua was chosen to be the leader of the nation of Israel. Joshua led Israel into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. Joshua led God's armies and oversaw the establishment of a place for the people of God. In a sense, Joshua was the one who obeyed God and with God gave Israel their first home. So then, you know, as I was kind of putting this all together, I said to myself, okay, so I could see a lot of different places that 
what Joshua did for Israel. I can see a lot of places that gets completed and fulfilled in Jesus. And then I I had to really kind of scratch my head and say, where do I want to look? Because man, this idea of God creating a place for his people, it shows up all over the place. Um, Where I landed though was um, John 14, one through three. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to spend some time maybe this week, uh, maybe even this Advent season, reading through John 14, one through three, as we think about to what degree is new life present in our homes? Um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and here's what Jesus says that I think is the completion of what Joshua did for Israel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Joshua brought the nation of Israel into the promised land, gave them a physical place that is their own. But after Jesus established the church, after Jesus um, gave his life to forgive the sins of humanity, after Jesus rose from the grave to demonstrate that he had the ability to give new life to all people, Jesus didn't reestablish his people in one physical place. Rather, Jesus scattered his people to go across all the earth. And so, Whereas God began by trying to give a physical place to his people, Jesus seems to be doing something completely different. Here's how I see it. Joshua gave land to Israel. But the completion of that is that Jesus gives life to his followers. Joshua was part of the time when God chose for himself a specific nation, the descendants of Abraham, where genealogy and lineage really mattered. Jesus completed that and said, the only thing that matters is that you have found your new life in Christ. So as we think about our homes this Advent season, um, here's the, the first and really, I think, fundamental question we want to ask ourselves. As we think about what, what, is my, what is my memory of home in the past? What do I want my home to be in the present? What kind of a home do I want to be building in the future? Here's the most fundamental question we can ask. Am I a Jesus follower? Am I one of God's people? Am I, a, am I one of God's people not because of the place I live or not because of my ancestry, not because of um, anything from my past, but simply because I am one of God's people simply because I have committed my life to following Jesus. I, I want to suggest uh, two Advent practices to us um, starting off this Sunday. And the first one comes from a long tradition in the history of the church. You can find um, preachers from throughout Christian uh, history, uh, across denominations, uh, across the spectrum today. You can find preachers who will give this constant advice. As Jesus followers, if we want to stay close to God, we should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. 
Has anybody ever heard the advice to preach the gospel to yourself on a daily or on a regular basis? Okay, a few people. So I wanna, I'm going to take a few minutes right now and say, if we're going to be people who are God's people because we are Jesus followers, what does it mean to preach the gospel to ourselves? Um, and there's, I'm going to look at this in a pretty simple way. It's, it's, it's kind of three really basic things, but in their basicness, even if they mean everything to us, we can too easily forget about them. First, if we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves, we need to remember that the good news of God in Christ always starts when we confess. And I really think that's an, an insanely radical starting place to become one of the people of God. See, because in our world, if we want to be part of something, if we want to be part of a group, if we want to be part of a team, if we want to be part of an organization, often the starting point is we have to prove ourselves. I remember in high school, I was a downhill skier, and I joined the USSA ski team. And this was a big deal because USSA was the organization that ultimately, um, you know, ran the Olympic ski program. And I really wanted to make the development team with the Duluth chapter of USSA. And the development team was the bottom level. If you make development, then that's the bottom level of what actually becomes the U.S. Olympic ski team. Now, hear me, bottom level. Like, wait, I mean, there's but I still wanted to be on the bottom level. And if you wanted to make the development team, all you needed to do was win a regional ski race. And the moment you win the regional race, you make the development team. I never made the development team because I was not good enough to make it. Anybody else had an experience where you really wanted to be part of something? You really wanted to make a team? You really wanted to get the, get the job or the promotion or the whatever? And it turns out, for whatever reason, you didn't have the skills, the abilities, the competence. Oh. In the kingdom of God, God invites us to do the opposite of what the world says. He says, I don't need you to prove that you are good enough to be one of my people. All I need you to do is to confess what you already know, that you are a broken person living in a broken world, and our confession of brokenness is all that's required to be part of God's people. This is the first part of the gospel that I think we need to preach to us all the time, because we just believe that we have to be good enough, that we have to earn it and prove it and win it and deserve it. And God says that's all false. All you need to do is admit that you're not good enough. And then, and then the second step, which is what Jesus invited us to do all the time, repent. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Follow me. Repentance in the original language literally has the meaning of to turn towards something. When we repent, we say, okay, I get that my life is broken. I get that I've messed this whole thing up, and so I'm going to stop going this broken direction, and I'm going to change the direction of my life. I'm going to start going in a new direction, and that new direction is wherever Jesus leads us. And then the third part of preaching the gospel to ourselves is the invitation, the reminder to say, and I believe, as John invited us to do, or as Jesus invited us to do in John 14, to believe that Jesus is in fact the one who will forgive us no matter what our brokenness is, 
who we can trust to follow, and when we follow him, who will give us new life. Now, here's why I need to do this on a regular basis. Um, When I think about what it means to preach the gospel to myself, when I think about what it means to sort of remember who I am in God and and resist the, the lies and the just sort of messed up thinking of the world around me, here's the danger that I often fall into. I start with confession. Okay, God, I did it again. It's been, you know, it's been minutes this time, but I did it again. Like, I messed up. But instead of my confession being followed by repentance and the reminder that Christ will give me new life, instead of that, too often, after the confession, I go, man, and maybe I really am just a broken person. And I let it stop right there. Too often, I let my mistakes I let my failures, I let the consequences of sin in my life and through my life, too often I let that become my identity. And I go, maybe that's really all that I am. And so we need to preach this gospel to ourselves because God invites us to remember time and time again that when we change direction, when we're willing to say, I confess and I repent, when we're willing to change our direction, God changes our identity. When we say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner, God says, and you are my son and my daughter. When we say, God, I know that I've broken and I've just made a mess of this life, God says, and I have made you whole. When we say, God, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not, I'm just not whatever enough. God says, no, 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 because of Christ, you are more than enough. I've said this before, but do you know how to tell how valuable something is to a person? It, it could be anything. It could be how valuable a relationship is, or it, it, the illustration works better in terms of like a, an item, a possession. Do you know how to tell how valuable any item is to a person? You can tell by how much they're willing to pay to either buy it or fix it. See, my, my vacuum cleaner broke the other day. Um, you know how much I was willing to pay to fix it? Nothing, because vacuum cleaners are cheap, and it was Black Friday, and I got a super cheap new one. Okay, I didn't get the super cheap new one. Micken got the super cheap new one. But still, my vacuum cleaner, not very valuable to me. I'm not willing to pay much at all to get it fixed. But a few years ago, um, my grandfather, um, when he was moving out of his home into assisted living, um, he and I grew up hunting together, duck hunting, pheasant hunting, grouse hunting. And when he was moving out of his home, he gave me a couple of his old shotguns, the old guns that I learned how to shoot on, that I have all these memories of hunting with my grandpa on. Well, I, I, I stored them in my home, and the place where I stored them got flooded with water, and I didn't realize it until a long time later. And then when I realized it, the the barrels had rusted, um, the wood had been damaged. I was willing to pay a lot of money to get those guns restored. Turns out, actually, a friend of mine incredibly generously said, and Carl, I actually want to help you um, cover some of the cost as well, because that friend recognized the value of this item. If ever you find yourself looking at your life going, man, I've made too much of a mess, I'm too sinful, I'm too broken, 
Remember this. God was willing to pay everything to restore your life. In a world where we feel like we always need to earn our spot everywhere, God wants to give us life for free, not because we earned it, but because that's how valuable we are to him. Joshua brought Israel to the promised land. Jesus brings new life to you and to me. Which brings us, as always, to I really think the most important part of any sermon, which is the question, what is your move going to be? First of all, uh, this Advent season, what would it look like And this is going to kind of take two parts. What would it look like to make Advent 2021 the season when you start following Jesus? Now, here's the thing. I know that a lot of us, and I don't know if I know everybody in the room. I think I know almost everybody in the room. I know that a lot of us have started following Jesus in our lives long ago. So I'm going to say this in two different ways. For those of us who can remember the day when we started following Jesus, for me, It's a very specific memory. Not everybody has a specific memory like this, but I do. I was at summer camp. I was sitting on the concrete floor in front of the fireplace with a big rock mantle chimney. And John Lundberg, my counselor, told the story from the book of Judges of Eid the lefty who hid his sword on his right leg and killed the evil king Eglon. And the story ended with with John saying, hey, Eid gave his whole life to God's purposes. And God wants you to give your life to his purposes as well. And so that day, we sang the last song, and the way it worked at camp was everybody stood up to go back to the cabin, but if you wanted to talk to a counselor, you stayed seated. So on that day, I stayed seated on the floor, and John had finished telling the story, and he came and he talked to me, and he prayed with me, and that was the first time when I said, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus in my life. But you know what happens? You do know what happens, because I bet this has happened to you. It's happened to me. That moment, which was pivotal, it was just, it was life-changing in so many ways. I forget about it. I take that commitment I made, that desire for my whole life to be following Christ, and I go, ooh, man, this is so important. But you know what? I'm going to just, I'm going to put this over here, because there's this other really interesting thing going on right now. There's these other desires and priorities and hopes and dreams that crowd out my decision to follow Jesus with my life. What does it look like, Advent 2021, to say this season I will remember and I will make this about my commitment to following Christ? Or, if you've never made that commitment before, maybe you've been part of a church, maybe you've been around church, maybe you're here because your parents bring you to church, maybe you're here because your relatives have brought you to church, what would it look like for this to be the time in your life where for the first time you say, you know what, I've tried too many things and none of them work. I'm going to try following Jesus this Christmas season. Why? Because I know that Jesus gives us new life Because he wants to be with us. The God who made you and gave his life for you wants to be with you. I've been exploring this a lot in the past 
weeks, and I'm going to keep exploring it because it's really grabbing my heart, but um, I've been exploring this idea of joy. Um, the image I use is whenever I go pick up Asa from preschool and I open the door, and every time, and I just, it gets me every time, Asa's like, he jumps up and he looks at me and he says, Daddy! And he runs over to me, and recently he's been sticking his head between my legs and giving me like a cute little three-year-old hug around the side of the legs, and I like want to hug him back, but I'm like, I don't want to squish your head, and it's, you know. But when Asa's face lights up to see me, and my face lights up back at Asa, that, I believe, is joy. Specifically, a definition I read recently is joy is the relational experience it's, it's by definition relational. The relational experience of two people glad to be with one another. When I see that look on Ace's face, I know he's glad to be with me, and I'm glad to be with him, and that is life-giving. Jesus wants to be with you both this Advent season and every day of life. That is why we celebrate Christmas, because it's the time that God said, I want to be with you. That's why we sing joy to the world. I said there's two practices. The first one, what would it look like to preach the gospel to yourself every day, to remember that God is the God who wants to be with you? Um, Here's the second one. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a quick question. Have you ever been to a surprise party? Surprise party? Ever been to a good surprise party? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, good. I love surprise parties. Now, picture it in your head. You know how this goes, right? All the guests show up early, because if it's going to be a surprise party, guests got to show up early. All the guests have been thoroughly reminded, don't tell the person it's a surprise. Once I told the person, oh, oh, it's the worst. And everybody's in the house or in the restaurant or in the wherever, but there's this moment. I want you to get this image into your head. It's the best moment at a surprise party. You're all sort of mingling, right? The host maybe has some appetizers and some drinks, and you're mingling. But then somebody who's on watch, you know, they're looking out the window. They suddenly go, shh, they're here, right? There's always somebody who goes, shh, they're here. And the reason that happens is because a surprise party, the whole purpose of a surprise party centers on the arrival of the guest of honor. That's the moment we've all been waiting for. And the moment they say, shh, they're here, if there's any little kids in the room, they all run and like hide behind something too small to hide behind. And, you know, the lights hopefully are already dim, so it's not obvious. And then there's this moment where suddenly the whole house is silent. And I love that moment because I think every single person, suddenly there's one picture in their brain. They're picturing the face that they're about to see on the guest of honor when they open the door. They're, they're imagining how this smile's going to just light up. They're imagining how they're going to scream or they're going to drop their phone and they're imagining catching it on video and getting to watch it over and over again and laughing. Everybody goes silent because they're picturing the arrival of the guest of honor. And then they're anticipating the joy that is shared when they shout surprise. And surprise is is code language for I love you and I'm so glad to be celebrating with you. They're picturing when they get to yell surprise and they get to see the person's face who's like, oh my gosh, all of you people, 
are so glad to be with me. A surprise party is quintessential joy. But I love that moment, I'm going to call it a moment of powerful silence when every single heart and mind is captured with that anticipation. And I want that to be our, my suggestion for our second Advent practice. Here's an idea for you. As we build anticipation for the coming of Christ, this Advent season, consider practicing, I just put a name on it and I wanted it to alliterate, so I called it the Silent Seven. Could have called it the Silent Six. Could have called it the Silent I guess six or seven. Are there any other numbers that start with an S? But here's what I have in mind. What if every day, holding this idea of a surprise party, every day you took maybe just seven seconds. If you want to really go for it, make it 70 seconds. If you want to really go for it, make it seven minutes. When we stop and we're silent and we anticipate God coming to be with us. I think if we made it a practice to take seven seconds or seven minutes or a period of silence every single day, starting today and going until Christmas Eve, that would build for us the joy that we find in the celebration of Christ coming to earth. It would build for us the power of the knowledge that God wants to give you a home Because he wants to be with you. Would you pray with me? God, again, we confess that too often we take the new life you offer us, we put it on a shelf, we set it aside, we forget about it. Too often we take the overwhelming gift of joy that you put on offer and instead we choose ultimately dissatisfying and disappointing things. Forgive us, we pray, for our sins. As we change direction in our life back towards you, would you change our identities as we so often fall into the trap of believing lies about ourselves. Help us to hear the truth that we are your daughters and sons, beloved of infinite worth, that you paid the highest price to heal us. And as we build this anticipation of your arrival here at earth, may we build each day the powerful celebration of your new life. Amen.